This episode brought to you by Team Stripes Academy. Learn from some of the top officials in the world. Start today at TeamStripesAcademy.com. You're listening to the Team Stripes Podcast, the podcast for hockey referees. Each show, we discuss the world of officiating and find out that not everything is in black and white. Here's your host, Brandon Bourgeois. Welcome back to another episode of the Team Stripes Podcast. You're listening to episode number 40. On this episode, we talk with former NHL referee, Mr. Kerry Frazier. Now, many of you out there will know Kerry, and you know he's quite the legend. During his career, he worked almost 2,000 NHL games, over 250 playoff games, and an astounding 13 Stanley Cup Finals. Kerry was really gracious with his time and talked to us about his career, some advice he has for officials that are aspiring to reach the higher levels, along with his take on officiating nowadays. So without further ado, let's welcome to the program Mr. Kerry Frazier. Kerry, so tell us about you know how you first wanted to get into officiating. Obviously, with your background, you had quite a, a playing career. But you made the transition to officiating. Just tell us what was sort of the the driver behind making that switch. Brandon, uh, as you would attest to, I'm sure growing up in Canada, um, as a youngster, we all wanted to play in the NHL. And it's in our blood. My father uh, was a minor professional uh, player. He played in the IHL. He was a goon (laughs) without uh, any uh, reservation. He, He knew how to handle himself. He was also a boxer. Um, he was a tough father. Uh, my upbringing uh, inside the house with uh, a younger brother, two years uh, younger than I, brother Rick, um, we just took to skating. Uh, I started at 15 months old. Uh, he was playing pro. Uh, I, as soon as I could walk, they put me on the ice uh, prior to his practices. And, and uh, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Uh, no differently than other Canadian kids, we ate dinner with our skates on and papers under our, our chair to keep the uh, ice from dripping onto the floor and the carpet, and then right back out to the outside rink. So growing up, I played on all-star teams all the way up. Uh, I was a good little player. Uh, I got to the Junior A level and was the captain of the Sarnia team in the Southern Ontario Junior A League. Uh, I had a lot of college uh, scholarship offers to uh, good schools in the U.S., Division One schools. I wasn't so inclined uh, to do it, uh, take an academic route. Uh, I knew I could play in the minor pro leagues, uh, but my diminutive stature uh, was one that, uh, and I played bigger than I was. I knew I wouldn't last too long from a physical standpoint. And a friend of our family who played uh, pro with my dad, he was coaching in the IHL at the time and went on to coach the Detroit Red Wings, a man named Ted Garvin. Uh, came to me and said, listen, you're, you know, you're really a good little player. You're tough. You, you could play in the minor pro leagues for sure, but that's going to be the end of the line for you. Why don't you get involved in officiating? And he gave me a, an application uh, to a referee school that was conducted uh, by uh, NHL and world hockey uh, officials at that time. It was 1972, the year that the World Hockey League came into uh, being. And there was a need for officials. Uh, I went to the camp. I paid $250. I was there five days. And I caught the eye of uh, the supervisors that were there. And Frank Udvery, Hockey Hall of Fame referee, 
was the assistant director of officiating for the NHL and Scotty Morrison. And he watched me work 10 minutes of a men's intermediate game on a Thursday evening before camp broke on the Friday. I get off the ice and uh, he met me in the dressing room and he introduced himself and said he really liked what he saw. He thought that I had a future and that he wanted to invite me to the NHL training camp for officials, uh, which was going to take place two days later in Toronto. Uh, He said he would call me if there was room for me. He had to check with Scotty Morrison, uh, the referee in chief. I got back from the camp late on Friday night, early Saturday morning. I received a phone call from Mr. Udberry, who said that we have you all set. We're excited that you're coming. And he told me to be at training camp and what to bring for the 10-day camp uh, to arrive Sunday the following day uh, in Toronto. Uh, From that point, uh, I was uh, infused with all of the regular officials in the NHL. I never had any aspiration to be uh, an NHL official. Uh, but I applied myself uh, in this new trade that I was trying to learn. Uh, I was very respectful of the uh, officials uh, at the National League level. I sat and ears open and mouth shut, and I uh, I found that I learned an awful lot. I was accepted by uh, some of the veterans uh, after a couple of days uh, as a uh, a guy that they they wanted to invite into their fraternity. Uh, I started doing exhibition games. Uh, they signed me to a contract, and it was uh, baptism under fire, Brandon. And you talk about you know how you got advice, and you were sort of mentored as you got into the league. I mean, can you recall any really influential mentors? I mean, you mentioned uh, Frank Advari, but in addition, can you recall any big mentors for you um, that helped you sort of in your formative years in the beginning, in addition to maybe potential advice that you would have got from those guys to really succeed uh, and, and and establish yourself for long-term success in the league. Absolutely. That first year, uh, 1972 season, I was put in the American Hockey League as a linesman, just like you were. The difference was uh, back then that they traveled us. So I would uh, jump on an airplane out of Sarnia, Ontario, my hometown, or go to Detroit and catch a flight down south uh, to the various cities, um, American Hockey League uh, teams, that were affiliated with NHL teams. 1972, Broad Street Bullies. Um, Dave Schultz uh, uh, was playing uh, for the Richmond Robins, the uh, Philadelphia Flyer affiliate, as were Don Seleski and some of those other big guys. Um, flying into uh, into Halifax, John Van Bax, Von Bax, John Van Boxmeer was a number one pick for the uh, Montreal Canadiens, as was Doug Reisbrough. And I had just played junior against them the year before. So uh, I was familiar with some of the players. Uh, I was able to travel with the minor NHL referees, some of which were working both NHL and American Hockey League. And John McCauley was uh, working in the American Hockey League at the time and doing some NHL games. And he was very instrumental in mentoring me. Uh, he was a terrific man. I had the utmost respect for him. I love traveling with him. I had to learn how to travel. Um, you know, as a junior hockey player, we rode on a bus. I had to learn about staying in hotels and how to get around and taxi cabs and, and all the things that uh, you're independently doing uh, as a uh, hockey referee uh, at the professional level. Uh, so he taught me an awful lot. Um, I learned, again, by 
listening more than talking, uh, which uh, really uh, paid dividends. The following season, I went back to training camp and I was signed to a contract as a referee. I had bonuses for certain levels of uh, American League games and obviously NHL, which I wasn't going to see. Um, and that was really my first year of refereeing. Uh, I learned very quickly, again, baptism under fire. And I think it was my personality um, that um, was was a strength for me, certainly my skating. I relied on my strengths uh, and my understanding of the game. But I also recognized very early that I had certain deficiencies that I had to overcome. I had to control my type A personality, uh, my little man syndrome. I played the game big and I was uh, not intimidated by bullies. As a matter of fact, I fought a lot uh, as a player. So I had to massage that and realize that I needed to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Very intimidating uh, era of the game. Uh, you had to stand up for yourself as, a, as an official, but you also uh, wanted to do it in such a way that you could get the players to play on your terms without uh, being antagonistic uh, and overtly aggressive. And you, you mentioned, you know, and I, I, it's funny, I remember reading your book, The Final Call, and I can recall, I can't remember what setting it was, but you were talking about sort of one of your very first games, and I think you threw out half the team on the ice or something. I can't remember the exact story, but I think it goes to show that personality that you're talking about and just how, uh, you know, that strength of, of personality, the strength of will that you had early on in your career. Well, you know, in that instance that you're speaking of, that situation, <clears throat> there was a, another lesson learned um, towards the end of the game when this, you know, little man syndrome, this tough guy that wasn't going to take any guff uh, from the home team that were getting uh, beaten badly and they were so frustrated. Uh, finally, the coach sent his captain over who very respectfully said to me, Mr. Referee, my coach wants to know if he could get a penalty for thinking. And I said, well, as long as he doesn't think out loud, he's probably going to be okay. And he said, the captain then said, well, in that case, he thinks you're an effing a-hole. Well, I started laughing. Um, I looked over at the coach because I, I found the humor in it. I thought it was a great line. And I looked over at the coach who was up on the bench and he was intense and he was angry. And as he saw me laugh, uh, find humor in his comment, he cracked a smile. And I knew in that moment that I needed to take the game a little less serious, uh, at least take myself less serious. I needed to have fun. I loved the game. Absolutely loved it. I loved it as a player. Even when you have to play tough, um, you give your best. Uh, and yet here I was in an aggressive kind of situation, and I was expected to be the controlling factor, and yet I was throwing gas on the fire a lot of times. It was a, a valuable lesson that I looked inside me to figure out what was going to work the best and how I could be the best for the game. And looking back at your career, and one of the questions that came up when we were we were telling our listeners, as I mentioned off the air, we were telling our listeners that they could submit questions. And one that came up was sort of regarding sort of the, the personality of the game back when you officiated. And we talk about the personality. I mean, when, I, when you look back at sort of your era, 
You know, you had, you know, like I said, you could have a Kerry Frazier working game. You could have a Don Koharski working game. You had these personalities attached to the officials where you look nowadays, and I don't think you see that personality as much. I'm wondering if you could just comment on the way the game has changed in terms of maybe giving personalities to officials. Well, Brandon, uh, I was in the NHL uh, for four decades, uh, you know, when I signed in 72 and and went through uh, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, finished in 2010. And the game changed certainly a lot uh, from the beginning to the end of my career. It almost seemed like every 10 years there was a transition in the game. We went from the brawling of the 70s and bench clearings, uh, really tough stuff. I mean, people think there's a a brawl that takes place if two two good groups of players are fighting at one time. We're talking 25 minutes of bench clearings with nobody left on the bench, sometimes not even the coaches and the trainers. It was bedlam. Um, we then went into a stick-swinging uh, era in the early 80s that had to be uh, curtailed. Uh, from that, we, we had uh, uh, hooking and holding the restraining that took forever uh, to uh, uh, try and extricate from the game. Uh, so... We then moved into the uh, the lockout uh, post lockout when it was the new NHL and and no hooking holding and and lots of speed and skill uh, was allowed. Uh, so you had to, as an official, adjust during all of those different uh, changes in the game and different eras. Um, you had to be intelligent. You had to follow direction, uh, but you also had to have a feel for the game and that personality that you spoke of that is really sadly missing. Uh, at this point with the officials, the names are off the back. They're a number. They uh, all wear helmets and visors. Um, I had a game towards the end of my career when we were in the two-referee system. And Shane Doan uh, was the uh, captain of the uh, Coyotes. Uh, the game was in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, before the opening puck drop, Shane came to me and he said, Kerry, uh, uh, what's the name of your referee partner tonight? So I told him and I said, why do you have a you have a problem with him? He said, no, not at all. He said, I just like to call the guys by name and I really don't know any of them. Uh, so that spoke volumes in the fact that here's a very respected captain, great guy uh, who wanted to know their names uh, so he could communicate with them. I think some of the communication, Brandon, uh, is lost. I learned real quick that uh, I needed to develop working relationships, professional working relationships with the participants of the game, not just the players, but the coaches, uh, even the media, uh, so that we could have dialogue. Um, I've got a story that I could share with you, if I may, uh, where Brian Murray, God rest his soul, uh, former general manager of, of Ottawa, coach there, uh, he was in Washington in the beginning of his uh, NHL coaching career, and it was in the early 80s. Brian it was a very excitable guy, very emotional, and he was getting all kinds of bench penalties from my colleagues uh, for flying off the handle at the from the bench. I had a game in the old cap center, and Brian was up on the boards, and he was screaming and flapping his arms, very excited. And rather than give him a bench penalty, I thought, because they're really not working. I thought, I'm going to go over to the bench and I'm going to have a conversation with him or at least attempt to. To do that, though, I had to calm him before we could have a conversation. So I went over and with my open palms, both hands open in front of me, which is a, an offering of peace and a monotone voice, 
while he was screaming and yelling, and he's really excited. He's flapping his arms. I looked up at him and I said, Brian, I'd like to have a conversation with you, but to do so, I'm going to have to get you to come down off the boards and calm down, please. Now, when you use the word please, it's highly unlikely that somebody's going to tell you to go screw off. He immediately came down to my level, not just height level, but also in his emotions. And I said, now, you may not agree with what I'm about to tell you, but this is the reason that I did or didn't do whatever it was on the play. He thought for a second, he reflected on what I said, and he said, Carrie, you're right about one thing. I don't agree with what you said, but thanks for coming over and talking to me. At the end of the game, in his media address, his post-game interviews, he made a point of saying that this was the first time that a referee came over and talked to me at the bench. And that's all I want. I just wanted an answer on any given situation. And referee Fraser did it tonight. A seed was planted, Brandon, at that moment between, uh, a, for, in a relationship between Brian Murray and young referee Kerry Fraser. Uh, he knew that I would approach the bench. He knew he could communicate with me, but there were parameters that were set. We do it respectfully. We have a conversation. And at the end, we might agree to disagree. But that served me extremely well. I did the same thing with players. Uh, there were times, as I'm sure you uh, can uh, attest to, the emotion of the game, people, their emotions run high. There's cussing. There's, there's anger. Uh, there's huge disagreement. And in that nose-to-nose battle, people can get out of control. As a referee, as an official, you have to maintain control of yourself if you expect to control the situation that you're presented. And I've stopped. I've listened to myself. I hear myself speak. And I would say in mid-sentence, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Let me restart this. This is what I meant to say. Because I was rising with the emotion that was coming back at me. And we can be defensive. You don't want to be defensive. You want to diffuse. And just following up with that, because I think that's a really good point that maybe we don't often hear enough about when we're talking about developing officials. But um, is there is there a time where you have to, you know, get emotions involved a little bit where you can sort of get a little more animated as official, whether it's after a call or, or you know, defending a point? Is there is there a, is there a time and a place to have a little more emotion involved than than keeping that sort of stoic control, if you will? Oh, absolutely. And, and believe me, I don't think any player, including your father, would say that Kerry Fraser was stoic. Um, there's times when you have to show your teeth, you have to show your grit. But what I'm talking about is internally. Mm-hmm. My body was like a thermometer. The emotion starts in the pit of your stomach. You think about it. You're in a confrontation with someone. Your adrenaline starts to, to boil. You, it's It's that natural instinct, fight or flight. And I wasn't going to fly anywhere. So when your muscles start to twitch and that adrenaline starts to flow, it's preparing you for battle. And it comes from down in the pit of your stomach. And as it starts to rise and it comes up and your your shoulders will tense, your neck will tighten, your muscles are getting ready. And then at that moment, when when the 
thermometer started to rise to the point where it was at my throat, the next step is for it to come out of my mouth. When I felt that, I would take a breath because the last thing I wanted to do was lash back at a player, get into that FU contest because nobody's going to win. And ultimately, you may end up banging the player with a misconduct and you're as wrong as he is. You need to take that control. You can be forceful. You can you can take that hand and, and say, okay, enough. You can be firm in your your direction and your instruction to the player, even with your your eyes, the glare, the stare. Uh, but at no time do you want to be inciting the player. You don't want to embarrass the player. Uh, it, it's just a delicate line that you're going to walk in trying to be in control of yourself, show a little bit of acting, uh, have that. So it's like a, you know, a Tootsie Roll, uh, the, the Tootsie Roll pop. It's hard on the outside, but it's marshmallow on the inside. It's soft and chewy. And that's what you need to maintain interiorly is that soft, in control, calm. But on the outside, you want to get your point across. And there's certain ways that you can do it appropriately. Certain things work with certain personalities that you're dealing with. Uh, and you have to know the difference. Each coach is different. They have different personalities. I didn't deal with a Bob Hartley the same way I would with Scotty Bowman or Al Arbor um, it, it, or Brian Murray. I mean, you could go down the, the gamut of the whole list. Every coach, Glenn Sather, was an amazingly uh, witty guy. I loved bantering with Glenn Sather. Slats would make me laugh. Uh, he was humorous. Uh, he knew when to bring his players down. Uh, he knew when to excite them. Uh, and he often would use the officials to try and get his point across to his players. So you became by play. You became part of the interaction that goes on in a game, a very important part. And how you as an official handle it is going to dictate often the outcome that's derived. And I wanted to do a follow-up question because I know you, you were talking about sort of, obviously you were involved in many eras of the NHL and you saw the game progress. But what I'm, I'm really curious to learn about, and we've had a few questions from our listeners about this, is when the NHL made that switch from the three-man system to the four-man system, did that change your approach at all? Because, you know, you, like you're saying, you could go to a Bob Hartley or an Al Arbor and you could, you could, you could be straight with them. You, you could give them you know, an answer to a question they had or a complaint they had. But all of a sudden, now that you have a second referee that you couldn't really maybe speak for, if maybe you disagreed with a call of theirs or, or you might have, you might have, you know, had something else. I mean, was that a challenge for you in terms of adapting to that full referee system? I think it was a challenge for everyone, Brandon. And, and there were certainly growing pains. Um, you know, as an official, um, the biggest thing that you, you, attempt to acquire is respect. Um, you know, they don't have to like me, but I would like them to respect me. Uh, and when you step onto the ice and you feel the confidence that is demonstrated in the players, wow, good to see you tonight. Uh, and, and that happened, would happen often. Um, they knew what they could expect from John Koharski, Kerry Fraser, Andy Van Helmet. We had that personality that you talk about, and we certainly, uh, they knew where they could go, what they could do. Uh, 
with each of us. They had a book on us like we had a book on them. You bring in all these new guys up from the American League that uh, want to be uh, the guy. They've been the one referee uh, throughout their career uh, on the climb. And now all of a sudden they have to share the ice. Um, I saw some some growing pains with young guys that felt uh, it became for them a contest. If penalties were being called by me in my area, just because they happened to be close to me, some younger officials felt that they needed to get involved. They started calling things from the long distance call from 100 feet away. It might happen right close to me. I would deem it not to be a penalty. And then all of a sudden I would hear a whistle blow and a guy would skate in from a hundred feet. That would upset the apple cart. It would confuse the players because I might be standing there shaking my head. Good play, play on. When all of a sudden 10 seconds later, they hear a whistle blow. Uh, so we had to work at, at uh, sort of being connected uh, as a team that took mentoring. Uh, I'll share with you a story and, there's a referee in the National Hockey League that is still working today that I worked a game with in Madison Square Garden uh, early in the two referee system. And he was just up uh, in his first or second year. Um, the play that was happening uh, around me, the first four penalties in the first period in Madison Square Garden were right in my wheelhouse. I would raise my arm on a delayed call. And shortly thereafter, the other referee from a long distance away would raise his arm. Now, when you have two referees raising your arm, the the procedure is that when the whistle blows, both referees come together to make sure that they have the same penalty. They then discuss it, make sure that, yes, we just have one penalty. And then one of you go and assess the penalty at the penalty box, click on the microphone and announce it. Well, Each of the four times that I raised my arm and the other referee shortly thereafter raised his arm, whistle blew, there was no meeting. He blasted to the uh, timekeeper's bench, he clicked on his microphone, and he announced the penalty. It's rather confusing to me, but I kind of had a feeling what was going on. The fifth penalty, just before the end of that first period, happened away from the action. He was the ref on the action. I was trailing the play. There was a hook down the wall on my side of a water ski holdup interference, and I put my arm up. Play went on in the end zone on the delay for a good 10 seconds. The other referee then raised his arm, and I was standing beside linesman Pat DePuzzo. I said, Dapsel, what the heck is there? I didn't see another penalty. Did you see it? He said, no, not at all. The whistle blew. I killed the play when the offending team took possession of the puck. This is the first time that that young referee skated over to me to have a conference. He said, what have you got? I knew he didn't see it. I said, what have I got? Tell me what you've got. He said, uh, uh, I said, yeah, uh, uh, you didn't see it. Don't ever raise your arm if you don't see the, the infraction and don't race me to the penalty box. So we had a quite a discussion in between periods about why he would be doing this. I found out that a friend of his from one of the NHL off-ice crews had told him that they had just received the directive and from the NHL office and hockey ops and that uh, the off-ice 
crew were to record which referee called each penalty. It was a stat they were looking at. So in that particular case, I was 0 for 4, and he was 4 for 4 before that fifth penalty was called. That's wrong. That's not good for the game. Uh, fortunately, we can work through those sort of things together. Um, it doesn't matter who gets the penalty call. What really matters is, is it right? And more on the personal side, I mean, for you, obviously, a big chunk of your life was, was really, uh, you know, about officiating hockey. I mean, uh, but for you, I mean, when you when your career was sort of coming to an end, I mean, was it was it how, how challenging was it, I guess, for you to step away from the sport, from the profession you've been involved with for so long? Like, what were, what were the emotions going through you, your head? Well, certainly, uh, you know, I I love the game. I, I worked hard. I was. Um, for me, um, I never wanted to cheat the game. Uh, I felt that uh, with the respect uh, and the rapport that I had developed and the ability to move, uh, I worked hard at my trade uh, right through to the last training camp. You know, my body weight was where it needed to be. My body fat was 10%. Uh, I did a lot of uh, foot, uh, quick foot movement, uh, uh, plyometrics and, and kept myself fit. <laughs> and you develop an instinct, Brandon. Um, you just, it, it's seamless. It's like a, a ballet. And, and I, when I say this, it, it sounds kind of bogus, but I can tell you that there's, there's nothing but fluid movement. If you see the play in advance and you've seen those plays over and over and over for 30 seasons, for over 2,000 games in the NHL alone, then you know sort of where to be in advance of the play. Not sort of, you do. Uh, so that that instinct carries you uh, to be in the right position, to see the play, to make the right call, to be out of the way of the players, to let the players battle for the puck. In 1984, I developed a positioning philosophy that was adopted by Canadian Hockey Association. I'm sure you were schooled in the piston and, you know, the, all of, all of the terminology uh, in the end zone um, where, yeah, well, that's Carrie Fraser's design of officiating. And the reason I came to that, that philosophy, all of those philosophies was because of my size, my diminutive stature. I couldn't see over and around players like your dad. They were too big. So I had to see the play in advance. And I watched a film clip in 1983 in the summer of Wayne Gretzky skating towards a defenseman. He was in the middle of the ice. It was just the D-man and Gretz approaching. Gretzky was approaching the blue line, the attacking blue line. Eyes straight ahead. Only two guys in the camera frame. All of a sudden, Gretzky, without looking, threw a no-look pass behind his back. Skating into the camera frame was Yuri Curry, full speed. The puck was tape to tape. Curry never even had to break stride. Now, I have a very analytical mind, and this is something that I I want your listeners to really pay attention to. You need to be analytical. You need to dissect your own uh, strengths, your weaknesses, and the play. And in this particular situation, I came and looked at it, and I said, how did Gretz know that Yari Curry was going to be in that space at that moment of time without looking and with a long gap uh, in in the, the footage. 
I came to the conclusion that they talk about seeing the ice. And I came, I was a sailor, so I knew that speed, time, and distance is called dead reckoning. So I knew that Gretzky knew not where Curry was, because he did. He knew where he was going to be three moves down the chessboard because he takes little pictures with his, with his eyes, little camera shots, and then it's sifted in his brain and, and in comes that, that filing system. So he knew that 1,001, 1,002, based on Curry's uh, speed, his, his position, his, uh, his path uh, straight up the wall, that he was going to be in that spot at that moment. And that's when he released the puck behind his back with a no look, boom, right on the tape. So I did the same sort of thing. I would read players' body language. I would take quick looks. My head, if you ever saw any clips and footage of, of me working a game without a helmet on, you would see my head moving constantly. I would not have to look at the puck carrier if nobody was going to check him. We have too many puck watchers today. Guys follow the puck with their eyes constantly. They don't look away from the puck to take those quick snapshots to see where players are now and where they're going to be based on their speed, their direction, the way they're leaning, their body language. Pressing on the stick would mean a pass or a shot. Um, you have to know where all the outlets are on the ice as a referee when a player has the puck. You have to know who has potential checking situation uh, or potential foul situation. So all of those things uh, are the sort of the cerebral approach to officiating uh, that can determine your position. One last thing. How many times do you see officials today in the NHL standing in absolutely the worst possible place on the ice, which is, down the trapezoid line behind the net where that goalie trapezoid line meets the boards. If you think about it, you want to give the players their ice. Let the players play where they want to play and you move away from it so that you're not in close proximity, so you have the best sight line. You're not going to get hurt and you can make a clear decision based from a good visual perspective. When you stand in that place behind the net that so many of them do, let alone get hit with a shot from the point, but you're going to be collapsed on potentially from both sides. Players will collapse on you from the back door and from the other corner. You become a sandwich and there's no place to go. You have to fight for your position. You cover your head and they don't see things. So when you think about the Harry Fraser positioning philosophy mm -hmm. with the the piston and the pivot and checking up to the hash marks and holding your ground there and pivoting out and back on that angle to the goal line so that you distance yourself from the play. You give the players your ice, their ice that they need to fight for the puck and you become an observer as opposed to part of the action. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great point. And kind of going into our last few questions here, Carrie, we'll, we'll certainly let you go. But I, I couldn't happen. But when you were, when you were talking about that answer about Wayne Gretzky and sort of the analytical view, the one word or the two words I guess that came to mind are hockey sense. And we talk about some of the best players in the world have that hockey sense, like Gretzky, spatial awareness. Now I'm wondering on the officiating side, would there be such a thing as as an uh, an officiating sense? You know, is there, is there that, is there that skill set where you, 
you can read a play or you can you can sense what's happening or is that a skill set that you develop over time through a through a long career well you better develop it quickly or you're not going to succeed or you're not going to survive mm -hmm. um, therein i believe lies one of the problems today i don't see the uh the younger officials um perhaps it's coaching uh, perhaps it's mentoring. Uh, perhaps it's the fact that they're they're thrust into the league um, very quickly with minimal experience, and/or the fact that the NHL is now recruiting officials uh, from a different place, uh, looking more for former players uh, that have to learn the difference between a player's approach to things and that of an official. And they're going to need a lot of coaching. They're going to need, need a lot of mentoring. They need to, uh, being part of a, a hockey team and, and being a good player uh, or a good skater. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just look at skating. Everybody today uh, is being recruited, it almost appears, as based on their skating skills. Well, just because a guy's a good skater, that doesn't mean he can become a good referee. It doesn't mean that he's going to have good interpersonal skills uh, that he can uh, develop with communication and uh, maybe has what I had that had to be adjusted. That little man syndrome, that aggressiveness inside, that that fight more than, than take control of your own emotions. Uh, there's a whole gamut of things that a new official has to learn, especially when he's thrust into the speed uh, at the NHL level, the, the greatest league in the world. Um, you have to be respectful uh, of players. And, you know, I watched a game two years ago, and Mark Jouanet, veteran referee, good guy, was having a, a debate with Chicago coach Joel Quindle. Joel had won about three Stanley Cups at that point. Joel is a very excitable guy. He's emotional. It was in Chicago. He just had a goal disallowed. He was upset, really upset. Uh, and he and referee Joannette were having a animated discussion uh, at the bench. Joannette was in control. Coach Quenville wasn't. Mark Joannette had the presence of mind to skate away. He had his, he allowed Joel to have his say, have his peace. And he used good judgment and good experience to move away from Joel to let things calm down. There was a young referee with the number so high that it indicated he was an American Hockey League uh, <laughs> official. And this guy, from 90 feet away, all of a sudden banged Joel Quenville with a bench minor because Joel waved his arms as, as Mark Joannette walked away or skated away. I just about fell off the couch. It was so inappropriate that this guy from 90 feet away would impose himself with a coach that he should respect or he should work at gaining some respect. I just, I felt this guy's in for some hard knocks along the way. If that's his trigger, if that's his, his uh, lack of, of uh, judgment in that case, and certainly uh, in, a, in an inability to work at developing a relationship uh, with some of the top people in the game. 
And Carrie, first off, we really appreciate your your time and taking 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 uh, some time out of your evening to to speak with us. And you alluded to my last question, and you and you touched on it about how really the league's recruiting former players. That's sort of the direction the league is going in. That was the question, honestly, that was the most requested from our listeners is to ask you about what your thoughts are on that approach. Is that is that a positive? Is it a negative? Is it something that's just necessary because of the speed of the game? Because certainly a lot of the listeners out there that we have are aspiring officials that are whether, whether they're working minor hockey or junior hockey. It's something that weighs on the back of our minds. I mean, is that is that what, what's your overall sense of the direction that league's going with respect to using the former players as, as their, their next crop of officials, I guess. Well, you know, it all comes down to coaching. And, and when I go back and look at uh, my uh, quick rise, uh, my recruitment from Mr. Edvery, uh not knowing really anything about officiating, but being a good skater and understanding uh, the game as a, as a junior hockey player, um, and but also being respectful and always being a captain and communicating with with referees as a player, um, it, it was sort of a perfect storm for me. So for me to say that it's wrong to recruit former players, uh, I was a success story, uh, and I was the youngest referee at the time ever to be selected to work the Stanley Cup Finals. My first year as a referee that I said in 1973-4 that that season that I went to the minor leagues and, and uh, in the uh, playoffs, I was sent to the Western hockey league and uh, I stayed out there from start to finish. And I was selected to referee the final game of the Memorial cup final. I was two years older than the players that were playing in that uh, game. Clark Gillies uh, was uh, playing for the Regina Pats. They beat uh, the Quebec rampart in that final game in Calgary uh, of the 73-74 Memorial Cup. Um, if you think about your travels as an official, listeners, all of a sudden, this is your first year of refereeing and you're chosen to referee the Memorial Cup final. I mean, that's like the Stanley Cup of of uh, junior hockey. Um, so you have to have an aptitude, but believe me, we didn't have a lot of supervision uh, during those years, uh, those early years. So every game, I went back to my hotel room, and we traveled alone. I was on the road by myself, uh, you know, throughout 80, 90 games that year. Uh, and I would I would replay the game in my mind. Even if the game went well, I would think about, was there something that I could have done better? Was there something, whether it was communicating with somebody or a penalty missed or a positioning, that I could have done better to achieve and accomplish a better end result for the game. Um, and, and that analytical approach helped me immensely. Uh, I think that today, uh, former players would have an edge uh, because they have played to a high level. They can skate. They should have an understanding of the game. But the one thing that the, the, the road warrior, the, the guy that has come up through the ranks as an official has over these players is an understanding of what might work and what not might not work as a referee. They're going to have the experience to handle situations that the former player doesn't have aptitude for yet, or at least hasn't learned yet. So uh, it can be baptism under fire. 
uh, for both guys when they move up to that next level. But the things that you do to get you there, and I say this to the amateur officials, those that are climbing the ladder, you have to uh, become uh, proficient at every level that you're in. You need to be the best you can be every game out, not better than the next guy. You don't have to be number one. My God, I worked with a lot of guys that just had to be number one. Uh, they do anything to climb over the backs of others to be that number one regarded guy. Um, all I ever wanted was to be the very best I could be, me, every night out for the game, for the players, for the coaches, uh, for the people that hired me, the National Hockey League. Uh, and so each time I came back from being off the ice, I had to reflect on, was I as good as I could possibly be tonight? What did I learn tonight that I can do better? And when you take that approach and then you move up to the next level, you're going to have to start all over again to earn your respect and your spurs. I gave Bob Hartley. We talked about Bob Hartley. In the very first game, I saw Bob Hartley in the National Hockey League. It was in Chicago, and he was coaching the Colorado Avalanche. He tried to pull a stunt on me. And, I, and I'd heard all of the stuff that he'd done to our minor league guys in the American League. He was abusive to them, and he was, you know, an emotional guy, but he was pretty cocky, too. And in this game, uh, he was the visiting team, and I said to him, looked at him, I was the back ref to make the line change. I said, uh, are you good? You're all set? Yeah, he nodded. I'm all set. He sent his forwards out. Now I put my hand up. No more change, Mr. Hartley. The other home team, they sent their guys out. All of a sudden, Bob realized that he wanted to match his 2D with the line that the home team sent out. And he sent two defensemen out. I went, no, no, back you go. And I waved them back. And they started to turn and go back. Coach Hartley said, no, no, to the players. And he waved them on the ice. Boom. I banged them with a bench penalty. Now, this was towards the end of the first period. We had a chat. He called me over as the players were leaving the ice. And uh, a little uh, Bunny Cluche was his assistant coach, former goalie, and uh, was standing beside him. And Bob Hartley said, listen, uh, you just did that to me because I'm a rookie coach and you have no respect for me. And he said, if I was Scotty Bowman, you wouldn't have given me the bench penalty. And I looked at Cluche and I said, Bob, welcome to the league. I said, you ask this little guy standing right here beside you, who's I've seen as a player and he's seen me as a coach. If Scotty Bowman did what you did, if Al Arbor did what you did, if Glenn Sather did what you did, they would be getting a bench penalty. So I said, when that hand goes up, that means no more change. If you want to show disrespect, you're going to have it the way it just finished. And I skated away. From that moment on, there was no more problem with Bob Hartley. He knew his limit. Yeah. The limit was set. And there was times when he would yell at my partner and I would just look at him. I'd turn and you talked about, are there times that you have to show a little bit of emotion? All I would have to do is stare, turn and stare at him and give him sort of the stink eye. <laughs> and Coach Hartley would smile and he'd say, okay, we're good. <laughs> because he knew that's it. You set limits. Yeah. And that, that's, that's an incredible story. And it's, it's, it's great to hear this type of insight that we don't normally get. And 
to hear these stories that you have and your experience and uh, you know a lot of these memories that you have and I think our our listeners I speak for all them where we really appreciate you taking the time to share this with us and uh, I know there's been a, a, a dozens of nuggets of wisdom in, in in the previous 45 minutes or whatever we spent together here. But uh, in terms of parting advice, and you've had, like you said, 2,000 NHL games, 13 Stanley Cup finals, over 250 playoff games. But for for any young officials listening out there, do you have any parting words of advice as they go into this season? Well, the first thing you have to do is really love what you do. Recognize that people don't come to watch you work but you are an amazing integral part of the game. Player safety for me is crucial. The head hits, the, the situation that has developed that I was on the, on the front line with, um, and I'm not a real popular guy uh, with the NHL hierarchy. Uh, certainly that is a, is a proven fact because I stepped out in front of the train and said, this has to change. It has been changing. Players have to change their, their attitude uh, and their philosophy on hitting. We used to have body checking. Uh, and I go back to Bob Ganey and Craig Ramsey being Guy Carbonell, guys like that that were uh, amazing uh, angle checkers. They, they used a body check to gain possession of the puck. And now we see guys leaving their feet uh, high, hard hits, players that are vulnerable, uh, lack of respect. Uh, so the player safety over the last number of years has been compromised. I'm really pleased to see that now we have um, the Department of Player Safety and the league addressing it uh, much more seriously uh, with the suspensions uh, and moving in the right direction. Uh, but it, it's going to take the referees to also uh, support, they're the first line of defense. So when you see something and in the pit of your stomach, you go wholly blank, you gotta raise your arm. And there's gonna be times when you're gonna have to make that real hard decision and it's not going to be in your best interest, but it's gonna be in the best interest of the game. It's when you have the courage to make that tough call and you know that I could be dead right here uh, it's happened a number of times over the course of my career, uh, disallowing Alain Cote's goal uh, in uh, the 1986 uh, Battle of Quebec uh, in Game 5 in Montreal with a minute and change left in the game of a tie game was not one that I wanted to have to make. But I knew in my heart of hearts that it was the right thing to do. There was goalie interference and that Alain Cote was able to shoot the puck into an unguarded Montreal goal with Brian Hayward dragged out of it. So when you see those plays developing and you just go, Oh my God, why me? That's when you have to raise your arm and you do the right thing. You have the courage and the conviction. And that's what separates referees from non-referees. That's what separates guys that are going to make it to the next level from those that won't. And Carrie, as I said, we really appreciate you taking the time to share this insight and certainly wish you best of luck down the road. And um, yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Brandon, I really appreciate it. And I, and I must give you a, an accolade here. You, you're terrific. Uh, you've got a great voice for this. Uh, it's really good. You've got a hockey background and 
And please uh, give my very best to your dad. Uh, he was a joy and a pleasure, uh, as were all the other players that uh, I was able to rub shoulders with in the NHL.